Welcome, everyone, to Spin Class. I can't say good evening anymore because we're on Daylight Savings Time, and it's still light outside. It seems just weird to say good evening. Welcome to Spin Class. So welcome, everyone, to Spin Class, another edition, the post-Israel election edition of Spin Class on a wonderful Thursday. Thanks for joining us. We are sponsored by Beckerman PR, Beckerman Public Affairs, building market leadership and reputation through strategic communications. Tell your story with Beckerman, BeckermanPR.com. We have a jam-packed, exciting show Coming up for you, all kinds of analysis, as we say, unpacking, spin, and the like. Uh, Executive Assistant Rummy is nodding in agreement. He likes the unpacking word. And we're going to go through and dissect, analyze, spin, as I said, on the Israeli elections that just happened this past Tuesday. Now, of course, as opposed to here in the U.S., Israeli elections don't actually end. The election itself ends. But the wrangling, the horse trading, the government construction does not end on election day. That actually goes on over the last uh, couple weeks, maybe up to four weeks, although uh, Prime Minister, current Prime Minister Netanyahu, probably future Prime Minister Netanyahu has said he's going to try and form a coalition pretty quickly, and it looks like he will have the partners to do so. So in a way, in a way, not to bring it too far back to the U.S., March Madness has just started here, and March Madness is also going on in Israel over the next couple weeks. So to help explain all of it, we have Uri Heilman of the Jewish Telegraphic Agency on with us, and he's going to explain, analyze, and dissect everything that has gone on in the Israeli elections, the surprises, the lack of surprises, and all the implications of the Israeli elections. Later on, we'll have Omri Seren of the Israel Project and Israel Advocacy and Hasbara Organization. Also, who's in Israel, explaining to us. We'll have Eli Singer, who is the CEO of the Jewish Channel, and he is also got, was in Israel and just got back this morning and is going to also talk about uh, his observations from the Israeli elections. We'll finish it off by having our own Nachum Siegel Network's Mayor Weingarten of the Israel Show uh, analyzing it, and uh, props to him. First, I want to welcome, for the first time, Uri Heilman of the Jewish Telegraphic Agency here to the show. Uri, thanks for joining us here and helping us with this very important matter of the Israel elections. My pleasure, Michael. Thanks for having me. Okay, let's start off uh, for the main question. I think the overarching question is, Israelis went to sleep, and we have the advantage of being right now six hours uh, behind them, not seven hours due to daylight savings time. Israelis went to sleep thinking that Bibi Netanyahu and Buzi Herzog were tied, that there was going to have, and then they woke up the next morning and it looked like we could, as, has 30 seats, the Zionist Union has 24 seats, and so on and so on. What happened as far as that? What was the surge? Can you explain the surge on the part of Netanyahu, specifically the Likud, not necessarily a surge on the right, because it seemed that the right got about the amount of seats that was estimated, but Likud in particular had a tremendous surge in the last week. I think there are a couple of things at play here. Um, I mean, first of all, polling is a very imperfect science. Um, Israeli pollsters haven't been the only ones to to get uh, predictions dramatically wrong. Americans have, too. Um, and this is simply a case of the pollsters getting it wrong. I think there's a couple other things. One is that there's this echo chamber um, that pollsters and media analysts and others fall into, and, um, you know, in the days leading up to the election where people were talking about the Zionist unions, Isaac Herzog, Bougie Herzog, pulling ahead of Netanyahu, I think we're all part of this kind of media frenzy, but not necessarily correlated with reality. And I think the third thing is that uh, it's a little bit harder to poll people who support Netanyahu and people who vote Likud for two primary reasons. One is that they're simply harder to reach. They live in settlements. They might have um, more children. Uh, they might be busier. They may not be picking up the phone or, or talking to pollsters and giving them um, answers and giving them time to ask their questions. And the, the second thing I think is that there are Israelis out there who don't like Netanyahu, don't want to openly admit that they uh, voted for him, but nevertheless did so. I think there's a little bit of a, a factor there. They, they think Netanyahu is right, but they don't want to be seen as having voted for him. So I, I, 
I think uh, very valid points all. I think one question I would have is the idea that you had this anybody anybody but Netanyahu campaign, right? And actually some of it was, you know, there was this V15 organization that uh, has been controversial, is now potentially going to be the subject of congressional hearings because it received indirectly funding from the U.S. State Department. Uh, that was fun. That was doing a campaign of anybody but Netanyahu, not necessarily advocating for anybody else. But you definitely had a a fatigue with Netanyahu, as you said. But it also looked that when you look at who how seats were, you know how who who Netanyahu kind of drew seats from. Um, you know the polling right beforehand had Herzog at twenty four. Right. And uh, and most of the polls and had Netanyahu at 20. And then we could drew seats. It seemingly it seemingly if you believe all the polls from by Yehudi, from Yisrael Beitenu. Uh, so in a sense, they kind of drew seats from the nationalist camp. The nationalist camp went ahead and consolidated around Likud, which didn't happen, which hadn't happened. So explain that a little bit, how the voters kind of decided that they were going to vote for Likud as opposed to Likud's fellow travelers? Well, I think it's instructive not just to look at the polls, but also to look at the outgoing Knesset. Um, and I think when you look at the outgoing Knesset, particularly the numbers of Habayit HaYehudi, the Jewish Home Party led by Naftali Bennett, and um, Israel Beitenu led by Avigdor Lieberman, you do see that I think Likud, as you said, pulled most of their votes from those parties. And I think the reason that people voted for Likud is because they felt that, number one, the prime minister was embattled and Likud was imperiled. Polls um, or media reports showed that Likud was slightly trailing the Zionist Union and they wanted to make sure that um, Netanyahu and not somebody else was prime minister. And the second thing is I think that when it comes to the, the uh, issue of Israel Beitenu, the corruption allegations um, and charges surrounding uh, that party and its leader, Lieberman, um, really made voters reluctant to cast their votes in favor of that party. I think it really took a hit. But essentially what you saw is people flocking to Likud um, to save it. And um, and Likud did very well. Uh, I mean, let's keep in mind that Likud has still only secured one quarter of Israel's votes. Right. So I think it's far from saying that it's a clear mandate for Netanyahu. But I think it is a clear mandate for the right wing because the right wing – captured, I would argue, a majority of the Knesset. Some people put the number at 57, um, but I think the number is probably more like 67 because Kulanu is not really a centrist party. Yes, it is focused on socioeconomic issues and hasn't really talked, didn't really talk much in the campaign about um, security matters, but it's basically comprised of, of uh, people from the right wing. Moshe Kahlon is a, a, only a, a recent ex-Likudnik there are other people there from uh, ex-Israel Beitenu, um, two former advisors to Nir Barkat, uh, Jerusalem's right-wing mayor. So I don't think it's really fair to characterize that as a centrist part- party. I would call it more a, a center-right party that's focused on socioeconomics rather than security. So let's just talk about the coalition building now that comes along. And, and we would talk about it being relatively easy at least the conventional wisdom, it's going to be relatively easy, as you just alluded to, for Likud or for Netanyahu to build a coalition and govern in a, that could be a coalition that could have, potentially, depending on the Haredi parties, uh, as much as, you know, close to 70 seats, which is pretty stable for for Israel. Uh, how will it have the same type of tensions that that existed in the last coalition where you had all different personalities that really didn't get, I mean, Netanyahu doesn't like Naftali Bennett. Bennett doesn't like Netanyahu. Moshe Kahlon and Netanyahu don't get along so well. Uh, and, you know, you have the various demands of some of the smaller parties at the same time. So uh, give the audience a little perspective on the coalition building. Well, I think there's definitely going to be horse trading and there'll definitely be tensions, probably a little bit less um, personality tensions. I think most of those were between Yair Lapid of Yeshatid um, and the Prime Minister. Um, Naftali Bennett of the Jewish Home Party, I think, buried the hatchet during this campaign. He could have really gone after Netanyahu um, to try to win votes, but he, he 
held his fire, and I think that um, he'll be an easy get for the coalition. I think between Jewish Home, Israel Beitenu, the two uh, Haredi parties, that would be Shas, the Sephardic Orthodox Party, and United Toward Judaism, that brings Netanyahu up to 57 seats. And I think that um, in the remarks that Kahlon, the head of Kulanu, has made since the election, I think it's clear that he, too, will be a relatively um, easy addition to the coalition. What I'm interested to see is the degree to which Netanyahu has to give favors to the Haredi parties in order to uh, secure their support. How upset are they going to be at him for um, what he did two years ago when he left them out of the coalition and um, backed this bill that expanded Haredi um, draft uh, uh, um, issues. Um, so I'm kind of interested in seeing that. But I think once he gives Kahlon some kind of portfolio um, and the Haredim what they ask for, I think it'll be pretty smooth sailing for him. And there's really no alternative here. Um, there's no alternative to Netanyahu leading the coalition. It's, it's really just a matter of time. And Yeshatid essentially has really no chance of coming into the coalition because of personality. I mean, they're viewed as a centrist party, or at least they had been in the last Knesset, being willing to partner with either side. They have essentially cast their lot with the with the uh, with Herzog's side, with the opposition. No, I guess I'm no. not sure of that. I think that there is a, there are scenarios in which Yeshatid comes into the coalition. The question is. Um, how much is Yair Lapid willing to swallow his pride and join Netanyahu? And how is Netanyahu interested in bearing the hatchet with Lapid and having a larger, bigger mandate, a more expansive coalition? Or does he want to keep him out um, because he doesn't really need him? So I think that that's up in the air. If I had to, to if I were a betting man, I would say Yeshatid will probably be in the opposition, but I don't think that it's unimaginable that they join the government. I mean, they did before. Um, until Lapid was fired. So it's quite possible that they could do so again. Very interesting. So let's just uh, talk about the, the the religious side of the equation, the religious parties. Now you have uh, you have the same, essentially the same three religious parties, but of course infighting amongst the religious parties, uh, even within uh, the Haredi and the Datilumi parties, because uh, uh, Eli Yishai's party, Yachad, which didn't make it into the Knesset, was both a Haredi party and a, uh, a Haredi Lumi party. It kind of it was trying to draw from both camps, uh, and they didn't make it in. The religious parties seem to be diminished uh, as far as numbers that when they were from the last Knesset, and there was some expectation as well that Bayit Yehudi was going to have up to 17 seats at one point in this new Knesset. Uh, they didn't come anywhere near that. Uh, in fact. You know, they were essentially, I mean, it, kind of on the low end of the spectrum, they ended up with eight with eight seats. And the Haredi parties, because Yachad, because El Yishai and the, and the fracture within Shas, and the, uh, they also, uh, they also, if you com- the combined number was smaller, as well as uh, uh, United Terror Judaism, the Gimel party, which is an amalgamation of both uh, the uh, Hasidic parties and the non-Hasidic uh, uh, Jews, they also had a fracturing within the Degel Torah movement within, uh, amongst, between uh, Rav Steinman and Rav Shmuel Arbach, and that led to people not voting in that side. So the it seems, if you look on paper, what might have been expected from the religious parties, that this infighting and the persistent infighting has really cost them in the Knesset. Well, I think it has. I think you're absolutely right. I, I would also be careful to draw a distinction between Habayit Hayudi, the Jewish Home Party of Naftali Bennett, and the two Haredi parties that made it into the Knesset, Shas and United Torah Judaism. For the Jewish Home Party, Habayit Hayudi, um, the main issues are really security-related issues, and I don't think that that's the case for the other Haredi parties, where they are more concerned with um, serving their own uh, Haredi constituents these are parties that have uh, entered um, left-wing governments, um, notably when Yitzhak Rabin was prime minister. So I, I don't think that they are ideologically driven on the security issues. They're more um, about delivering things to their Haredi constituents. But certainly the Haredim were diminished. I think some of that is that Yachad probably pulled some votes 
from the two other Haredi parties um, that that ended up being wasted. Probably some Haredim went to Likud. Uh, maybe Haredim stayed home to a larger degree than they have in past elections because of disenchantment with Netanyahu. Um, it's really hard for me to say, but you're absolutely right. The Haredi parties are diminished. Shas is down from 11 seats to seven. Uh, Israel, uh, I'm sorry, United Toward Judaism is down from seven seats to six. Um, Although I think I think they got seven in the end. I think they just made seven, uh, but but they were expected to get eight. Okay. Okay. But uh, uh, no question about that. Let's just talk for a second about the issues in the race. And a lot of everybody talked about, or at least outside of Israel, uh, talked about how this race, security issues, uh, so many analysts chided Netanyahu for coming to speak in the U.S. about the about the Iran issue, when that wasn't the top issue in Israel. The real issue was economic issues. And... It says you also, at the same time, many, what I found interesting, many generals and, and Mossad leaders uh, came out to support Herzog. Yet that just did not seem, the public just did not seem, the Israeli public did not seem to trust Herzog on the security issue. Uh, so it, it was kind of, you had Herzog campaigned a little bit, you can trust me. Uh, uh, Netanyahu had a last minute appeal for the, the, for the future of the state, and that seemed perhaps to have worked, but what were the issues in the end that really mattered to the Israeli voter? Well, I think there, there are two issues here, um, and you, you hit the nail right on the head. One of them is that this debate, this campaign was mostly not about security. The robust debate was really about socioeconomic issues. But perhaps paradoxically, I think when it came to the ballot box, most people did vote on security. The reason I think that wasn't such an issue in the campaign is because there really is broad consensus in Israel about security issues. Everybody views Iran as a threat. Everybody looks at the upheaval in the Arab world and considers that problematic when you're thinking about the fracturing of Syria and the rise of Islamic groups on Israel's um, border with Syria, uh, when you think about uh, Hezbollah's dominance in Lebanon, when you think about Hamas's takeover of Gaza following Israel's withdrawal and three subsequent wars that Israel's fought, instability in Egypt and elsewhere around the Arab world, these are all things that Israelis see as problematic. Uh, they don't see a path forward right now with the Palestinians. Um, I think many Israelis would like that. I think a poll show majority of Israelis would accept a two-state solution if they thought that that were possible right now. But Israelis just don't believe that that's achievable, so there's pretty much nothing to discuss. And even, I think, with, with only very, very marginal exceptions, I think that that covers uh, the vast majority of the Israeli electorate. So people were really talking about socioeconomic issues. But when they went to the ballot box, I think most people still voted according to ideology and security. Yes, the, uh, Kulanu and Yeshatid, which were focused on socioeconomic issues, drew a collective tw- 21 seats. But that's still less than 20% of Israeli voters. Most voted for their uh, ideological parties. And I think the reason that Herzog ultimately was not a viable alternative to Netanyahu is because for even for people who don't like Netanyahu, Herzog is just not a viable alternative. The two Israeli prime ministers from labor, from the left of center, that have won election since the ascendance of Likud in 1977 under Menachem Begin, both were former IDF chiefs of staff. You're talking about Yitzhak Rabin and Ehud Barak, both of whom had impeccable security credentials. Herzog doesn't have those security credentials. And even though you have all these generals and security officials who cast aspersions on Netanyahu in the final weeks of the election, none of them were running for office. If you had a former chief of Mossad running for office under labor, I think things might look different. Um, but Herzog was simply, um, you know, he was more of a blank slate. I think a lot of the vote for Herzog was uh, an anti-Netanyahu vote. And I don't think too many people were very jazzed about Herzog. And ultimately, he just did not have those security credentials. And we're talking to Uri, <clears throat> excuse me, we're talking to Uri Heilman from the Jewish Telegraphic Agency, unpacking and analyzing the Israeli elections uh, and the ongoing, at this point, uh, yet to form a government, but we're trying to figure that all out. What happened? What will happen? And 
Let's just talk for a second about the American side, Uri. Okay, you're you're here in America covering uh, both the Jewish community and uh, Israel at the same time, and there is clearly a, I guess, the expected, or I shouldn't say that it's it's not expected. The reaction of the Obama administration uh, so far has been, I think, quite uh, surprising, given you know the treatment of an ally, given the treatment of Netanyahu over the years, and, you know, I think there's bad blood on both sides, and I think fault lies with both sides. But the idea of the president not calling the prime minister to President Obama, not calling Prime Minister Netanyahu, current prime minister, to uh, go ahead and congratulate him on a win, is that disturbing? Is that, are we just going to be, see a, a constant deterioration? And at the same time, you have many Republicans celebrating Netanyahu's win. So are we just in more for the same uh, partisanship on the Israel issue? Well, I mean, I think the lack of an Obama phone call shows the depth to which this relationship between Netanyahu and Obama has descended. Um, I mean, I think it's really bad. Um, they they don't like each other. They feel that um, each one feels that the other is trying to undermine him. Um, and they're probably both right. They, uh, I think um, President Obama has been undermined by Netanyahu's speech to Congress. Uh, I think that was partly uh, Netanyahu's aim to certainly undermine the deal taking shape um, about Iran. Um, and I think Netanyahu feels undermined by Obama, um, that Obama did not meet with him when he was in Washington, um, and that Obama um, preferred to see, uh, you know, that Obama administra- former Obama administration officials were involved with V-15, this effort to unseat Netanyahu in Israel. But what's remarkable is that the Israeli, and this is, not, this is a kind of a cliche, but it's very true that the Israeli-American relationship is far stronger than the personalities of these two leaders and will remain strong despite uh, the problems that they have. I can't say that there, there will be much change for the next two years for the remainder of Obama's presidency. Um, but I think that the Americans are, uh, the U.S. administration is deeply disappointed in, the res- in two things. One, the results of the election that Netanyahu won. Um, and number two, I think they were dismayed uh, in the way that the, the um, prime minister ran the final days of his election seemingly reneging on the two-state solution, although he's reversed that uh, that today. Right. That just um, happened uh, this afternoon uh, that he gave an interview saying, well, I didn't mean ab- in absolute terms. And then at the same – then the White House spos- spokesman, Josh Earnest, dismissed that. Uh, it's it's kind of funny when somebody comes around and gives you an opening to your way of thinking, and they turn around and say, no, no, no I, I don't care what he says. I mean, it's, right. it's, it's how, how, how uh, strange is that? I mean, they just don't seem to be willing to accept anything from from Netanyahu. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of anger. I think the way to look at this, you know, people compare the relationship between Israel and um, and and the U.S. to how Obama treated Putin after Putin won re-election or other heads of state for countries that are far less close with America than Israel is. But I think that it's helpful if you look at the relationship between Obama and Netanyahu as between um, almost a Democratic leader and a Republican leader. The Democrats and the Republicans have little uh, love lost for each other. They, they snipe at each other all the time. They say ugly things about and toward each other. Um, but ultimately, they're still much closer than, um, say, an American official versus a Russian official. So I think the, the Likud government is simply very closely aligned with conservatives in the United States, with the Republican Party. And the Obama administration, the Democrats, are very closely aligned with the Israeli liberals, the Zionist Union, labor. And they're just upset about, um, frankly, losing this election. And, and it's, of course, interesting when you think about it, because it's not as if there was a tremendous amount of daylight between Netanyahu and Herzog on the Iran issue. And yet, yet this, they seem to have gone all in for Herzog, which of course then begs the political question of if you actually stake out that type of all in position, you better actually be successful in doing it. 
uh, and the, the administration see, really seemed to go after Netanyahu double-barreled. They were unsuccessful, and they just seemed to be bad sports about it. Well, just to play devil's advocate for a moment, you could argue that Netanyahu did the same thing or worse two years ago when he made clear his preference for Mitt Romney. Um, so, I mean, I don't think that those two things, you can argue which, is, which was better, which was worse, but I don't, I don't think that they're materially different. Yeah, I, I think that's an excellent point, and I think that's probably, I, I think both sides should have some reluctance or at least caution in meddling in the other sides. Of course, we, we do have this phenomenon, and I think, uh, you know, as we close this, close off uh, our segment here, is we do have this phenomenon of American consultants of every single American, every single Israeli party essentially having their own American consultant slash pollster running their campaign, and much has been made of, as you said, uh, the V15 being run by uh, Obama field director Jeremy Byrd, as well as uh, Rand Paul's, some of Rand Paul's uh, strategists running uh, Lee Kud's media campaign and various pollsters. Paul Begala was in Israel. All types of American pollsters running various Israeli campaigns. Yeah, I mean, American pollsters also do campaigns in, and strategists do campaigns in other countries. We don't hear about it as much, but I think this shows how close these two societies really are um, and how much that they, they get each other. And who, so it, it would seem, I guess, that the as far in an Israeli society, the Republican pollsters have the superior message. Well, I mean, I think Israeli society right now is more conservative. I think that Israelis are looking around at a threatening world. Um, aside from the issues we mentioned with the Arab world, they're seeing Jews getting attacked in Europe. Uh, they see the U.S. administration embracing a deal on Iran that worries them. Uh, they see the, the international effort to isolate Israel gaining steam, and they are worried. And um, when they are faced, pushed um, into a corner, when they feel their back up is up against the wall, I think that um, the tendency to vote conservative is stronger. And I think when you, when you live in that region and you see what's going on around you, um, uh, conservatism is a natural reaction. Okay, Uri Heilman from the Jewish Telegraphic Agency. I really appreciate your insight on the elections, uh, what, what happened, what's going to happen, and a really a really comprehensive overview of, uh, of politics in Israel and the various players. Thanks for joining us here on Spin Class. My pleasure. Thank you, Michael. And I want to welcome to the conversation Omri Seren, uh, of the Managing Director for Press and Strategy at the Israel Project, where he manages media and issues operations. He is a political operative, writer, and academic who has been involved in politics and journalism for over a decade. And he is currently in Israel, uh, I don't know necessarily covering the elections but certainly, or involved in the elections, but certainly uh, more than willing to share with us his expertise as far as what's going on in Israel, what's going to happen, as well as the U.S.-Israel relationship and the uh, Israel-Jewish community relationship. Omri, thanks for joining us here on Spin Class. Thank you for having me. So let's just take it from the top, and I'll take it from where we just ended off with Uri Heilman. Uh, we were talking about specifically the nexus of Israeli politics and uh, and American politics, and Uri was essentially saying that, well, it's just the natural affinity that Democrats are more in tune with the with the Zionist Union side, Republicans more in tune with the Likud side, and. Therefore, it's expected that Obama, the Obama administration is going to have this political loathing for Netanyahu and the nationalist camp. Is this a normal uh, – we have – I at least I haven't seen this, this type of really uh, deep-rooted disdain or distrust uh, a, between the leaders of Israel and, uh, and the American president – before, is this uh, something that's normal, something that can be solved, or we're we just going to have to live with it for another two years? Well, listen, there's, you know, I mean, there's a, those are a number of questions. Let's take it from the top. Sure. Is it normal for American uh, political operatives to be involved in Israeli elections? Well, as a, you know, the historical matter, uh, when they're either, you know, not in government or when they are non-political, which is to say pollsters, uh, yeah, they're involved in Israeli politics all the time. The, you know, Israeli culture, Israeli political culture especially, is a blood sport 
but Israel shares our values, Israel shares our interests, Israel shares our, uh, shares the same heritage of Western freedoms that we have in the United States. And so you would expect the debates, especially the domestic debates, but also the foreign policy debates because of our shared interests, to be similar. And so the kind of political divisions that you see are also similar. Democrats align with labor. Republicans align with Likud. Because it's the same issues plus some Israeli complexity. But the question this time, and this is what you were alluding to about Jeremy Byrd, the question this time appears to be, as I read it, about uh, money. So it's not just, uh, you know, Fox News just did this expose, and uh, as did the Washington Free Beacon, that, there, that it, the Senate has opened a bipartisan probe against this organization, One Voice, that was trying to unseat Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu because it may have violated its 501c3 status. And so that is, by definition, not normal. Right? There is a probe into their activities. So, yes, of course, the Israeli right aligns more with the American right. And, yes, of course, the Israeli left aligns more with the American left. But this specific issue that you were alluding to, the uh, issue of the organization that's called PeaceWorks or One Voice, having an Israeli presence called Victory 15 or V15 is something that has, raised, that has generated bipartisan concerns in Congress, which almost by definition makes it abnormal. Now, the broader question about the U.S.-Israel relationship, you know, there's no secret that there is enormous tension between uh, President Obama and Israeli Prime Minister, both current and incoming uh, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, but the U.S.-Israel relationship is, you know, it's, it's a cliche, it's a cliche, but the Israeli relationship, it goes beyond individuals. It's grounded in shared values, it's grounded in shared interests, it's grounded in history. There are hundreds, there are thousands of uh, interpersonal relationships, military-to-military relationships, political-to-political relationships. And so, you know, even in the context of even granting the assumption that the Obama administration is inordinately hostile to Israel, there's a limit to how far you can, uh, how far you can erode the U.S.-Israel relationship simply because Americans want it overwhelmingly, Israelis want it overwhelmingly, and political elites in both countries want it overwhelmingly. So let's talk for a second about the the campaign itself and how it took shape and and the I guess some of the law of unintended consequences to a certain degree, right? I, there were parties that supported at the time a having a new government, bringing down the government because they thought they'd do better or in a in a new situation that didn't that worked out for some, it didn't work out for everybody. And uh, you as a strategist uh, or at a and a, a media person. What what worked and what didn't work for the various uh, for the various parties out there? So this is a, this is an excellent question. It's a question you know that many of the uh, folks who are reporting on this uh, election have gotten wrong, uh, or at least they've approached it incorrectly. Listen, what happened during the last week of the Israeli election is actually not that difficult to explain, despite the fact that a lot of reporters, uh, to say nothing of policy folks and politicians, have been getting it wrong. Here's what happened during the last week of the election. The center-left Zionist Union had a week ago, or two weeks ago, begun to open up a weed over the Likud. Now, Israel's electoral system is one in which you vote for parties, not for individuals. So you have this weird dynamic in the polling where a plurality of Israelis, 44%, 48%, said that they wanted Netanyahu to be the next prime minister. But the Likud was losing. It was only drawing 25% of the votes, 20% of the votes. And so during the last week, Prime Minister Netanyahu made a conscious decision on what his closing argument would be. And the closing argument was, in as many words, hey, listen, 
all of you people who want me as prime minister and aren't voting for me, you need to understand if you don't vote for me, you won't get me as prime minister. We will lose, is what he said from a Sunday rally, from his closing arguments. And that's, you know, I mean, we live in a environment, especially in the United States, especially in D.C., where it doesn't seem anything has an effect, where everything is noise. But, you know, sometimes arguments work. Sometimes voters respond to an argument. And what happened is voters said, oh, that makes sense to us. And the voters who wanted him as prime minister returned to the Likud. And that's what, and so all of these people who are talking about how uh, the Israeli electorate lurched to the right or it was a right-wing shift, none of that is true. You know, what actually happened, and it's important that people understand this, what actually happened is that parties that are more extreme than the Likud, actual right-wing parties, you know, the Likud, the center-right party, right. they lost actual right-wing, go ahead. I'm saying they lost seats. Uh, they, they, that yeah. by Yehudi and uh, Yisrael Beteno and Yachad was ended up out of the. So the ones absolutely correct, correct. Uh, let so, me, or so, let me, let me, t- and I think I think you hit the nail on the head there. That's exactly you know it's not the sea change that 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 you had. And in fact, we we just talked we just talked about with our last guest the idea that Netanyahu, yes, he went ahead and said there won't be a Palestinian state. Uh, but today he gave an interview saying, well, what I meant was there won't be a Palestinian state as long as Hamas is a partner of the Palestinian Authority. Yeah. And but but, but let me but let me ask you for a, qu- a question. I I want to read to you today's uh, New York Times uh, editorial, or actually it might be yesterday's. Um, but it's uh, it's it's yesterday's New York Times editorial. Uh, Mr. Netanyahu showed that he was desperate and craven enough to pull out all the stops. On Monday, he promised that as the Likud faction remained in power, he would never allow the creation of a Palestinian state. And then they, you know, they go on and on and talk about how ugly and how horrible and et cetera that he is. Um, let me just, from from your point of view professionally, uh, we, all, we we potentially have a, a issue with uh, American Jews who identify generally on the more progressive side as the more conservative side, not identifying enough with Israel and, uh, and with Israel. Does Netanyahu's campaign and his election uh, or re-election exacerbate that problem? Well, let me say two things about that. The first is uh, I'm not sure how I'm not sure the degree to which American Jews, be they progressive or not, are actually distancing themselves from Israel. You know, sympathy for Israel among Americans is at historical highs, including among Democrats. It would be really strange. And, you know, my organization, the Israel Project, does polls every month on this stuff. Sure. Uh, But also Gallup and Pew have found the same thing. Support for Israel and sympathy for Israel is at historical highs across all demographics. It would be really strange if democratic support for Israel was increasing and progressive and progressive Jewish support for Israel was decreasing. I would be surprised if that turned out to be true. And anybody is welcome to look at polling that confirms why it would be unusual for that to be true. The second thing that's important to note is, you know, Netanyahu is being that New York Times editorial misconstrued what the Prime Minister said. You know, Netanyahu didn't say that he doesn't support a two-state solution. Far from it. He said if you want, he said that he can't envision a successful Palestinian state as long as Islamic Jihadism is marching across the region and threatening even established governments. Right? Think about this. Jordan, the Hashemite Kingdom, a country where with a robust with it was a robust government control over the media. Even that country is increasingly threatened both by Iranian mischief and by internal Sunni jihadism, excuse me, Sunni extremism. And the prime minister said, listen, I just don't understand. I just don't envision that dynamic, which makes a two-state solution impossible. I don't envision that ending while I'm prime minister. And then people took it and said that he was rejecting the two-state solution, which he wasn't. He wasn't. He was making a statement about about political reality. And so today he clarified and he said, no, this is what I meant. The other thing that the New York Times talked about 
was a late push where, the, where Netanyahu said, the Arabs are voting in droves. Now, what does that mean in an Israeli context? where 20% of the country are Arab citizens in full standing. You know, the, the third largest party in the Knesset was the joint list, the uh, combination of all the Arab parties. Correct. What does that mean? Like, what's that code for? That's code for, hey, the other side is voting. You should get out and vote if you support me. And it's the, it's the same as a U.S. politician who would be saying, you know, a Republican saying, women are coming out in droves and voting, or a Democratic politician saying evangelicals are voting in droves. That's what he meant. And the reason I emphasize this is because that comment is only cheap and racist if you go out of your way to misinterpret it, which is kind of what happened. And so, I mean, I hope that it doesn't complicate relations between Israel and American Jews, but if it does, uh, I think that there's a fair case to be made but that's because progressive Jews were looking to be offended. Okay, Omri, I can't let you go without talking about J Street. J Street is having their annual conference. Uh, it starts this Sunday, runs for three days. The White House has decided to send White House Chief of Staff Dennis McDonough there. Uh, they did not send as high, or was perceived that they did not send as high a ranking official to the APAC conference, which draws through 16,000 people. Uh, explain the implications of the the White House embrace or seeming embrace of J Street? Listen, J Street has gone out on several limbs for this White House and has been uh, including a frankly shrill campaign against Netanyahu's speech to Congress. And, you know, I mean, I don't want to be sarcastic about it, but it would be ungrateful for the administration not to reward J Street for having done all that work for them. Uh, J Street has borne enormous costs for their strategic missteps. You know, an American Jewish group that campaigns against a sitting Israeli prime minister, and then that prime minister gets reelected again, is in a really tough place. It's in a really tough place. So, you know, I mean, they, I'm, 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 I'm full disclosure, I'm not a fan of J Street. But at least the administration isn't being ungrateful, you know. J Street has suffered greatly because of the work it did on behalf of the administration. Eh, you know? Right. It's, I guess it's kind of interesting at the same time we talk about everybody wants or every everyone in Jewish officialdom uh, or establishmentdom uh, always declares that Israel is a bipartisan issue. Israel's bipartisan has to be bipartisan. And is and at the same time, some of those people are the same people who indulge J Street, who uh, who makes no bones about about being uh, a creature of a creature of the left or a creature of the left of the Democratic Party. Sure, absolutely. Listen, the majority of Democrats are on record, for instance, uh, being much more hardline on Iran than is J Street. But I think what you said is absolutely needs to be emphasized for your listeners. Uh, you are exactly right. It's not just that the American Jewish establishment says Israel is a bipartisan issue. Israel is a bipartisan issue. Polling shows us that enormous majorities and pluralities, no matter what demographic you're talking about, support Israel. J Street is, in that sense, not just out of the mainstream in the Jewish community, but out of the mainstream of American politics. But to get back to what I was saying earlier, you know, the, this administration opposed the sitting Israeli prime minister's speech to Congress. A majority of Americans, let alone a majority of Jews, did not. A majority of Americans told pollsters repeatedly that they felt uncomfortable with how the invitation went down, but they wanted their lawmakers to hear what Prime Minister Netanyahu had to say. Clear majority. This showed up in polling that was done by my organization. It showed up in polling that was done by McLaughlin and Associates. It was published in Bloomberg. It was published in Politico. There was no debate on this question. Americans were uncomfortable with how the invitation went down, but they wanted lawmakers to listen to the speech. They were against the boycott, in other words, the administration-driven boycott. Right, right. J Street campaigned on behalf of the administration. 
They a- absolutely. took a lot of damage for it because they were on the wrong side of that debate. They simply were. And so, you know, I mean, I wouldn't take the McDonough invite as anything but the White House rewarding an organization for going out on a limb for it, even though that limb got cut off. Right. Well said. Omri Sarin. made the wrong mistake, on beha- made the wrong move on behalf of the administration. All right. Omri Sarin. So, the administration's rewarding him. Omri, thank you very much for joining us from Israel. Omri Sarin, Senior Advisor for Strategy for the Israel Project. Thank you for that cogent analysis, and we hope to have you again in the very near future. Thank you. Certainly my pleasure. Thank you for having me. This is Spin Class, and we're talking politics, specifically Israeli politics, the Israeli elections. I want to welcome to the conversation Ellie Singer, CEO of the Jewish Channel, who recently returned from Israel, was monitoring the elections, and is going to hopefully give us some firsthand accounts of the things he saw, what surprised him, what was expected, what was unexpected. Ellie, thanks for joining us here on Spin Class. My pleasure. Pardon me, I'm a little bit hoarse. Well, that can, you know, travel back and forth in the same day can, uh, can do that across time zones. So start for a second. Uh, you, you're, you're, you've been in, you know, uh, certainly observing Israeli politics from the inside and from the outside, uh, for quite some time. What surprised you about this election? What did you see that was interesting off well, the bat? Uh, you know, on the, there are, there are different kinds of, uh, ways of, 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 uh, breaking down the analysis. Um, but let's start with anecdotal. I think that that's, uh, <clears throat> that's the easiest. Um, you know, I, I probably interacted with 20 people, 25 people in the course of the election day, um, from 7 o'clock in the morning on through till about 10 o'clock at night when the polls closed. I was asked by all of them if I'd voted yet. Nobody stopped asking me if I was actually a voting citizen, but they asked me if I voted yet. So that was the mood. That's a testament to your accent, obviously, because <laughs> your, your Hebrew must be very good. To the, to the, to the turnout. Which, which put, as someone who uh, works with me said, put, put U.S. elections to shame. 68% of the registered voters headed to the polls on, on, on uh, election day in Israel. That's, that's a huge number. Right. I, absolutely. I'm very envious of that type of number. It's really, uh, it's really incredible. And now, who were people, who, was the, who were the taxi drivers voting for? So it's interesting. Um, for the first time, I met taxi drivers who uh, said that they weren't voting for Likud. Um, and I thought that was a little bit of an indicator that Likud would take a hit. Um, everyone was shocked uh, by the actual results, um, and people are still scratching their heads, including all the pundits in Israel who looked silly and were, were really scratching their heads on TV. Um, they were all sort of, everyone had egg in their face. No one really called this right. Um, at the end of the evening, I was actually in a, uh, in a hip, trendy suburb in Tel Aviv. Uh, it's the sort of equivalent of Williamsburg, uh, or what Williamsburg was several years ago in New York City. Um, and, and there was a, a mood of shock uh, that uh, that was that pervaded the uh, the streets there. Younger people, um, clearly these were people who were well left of center, were were shocked um, and and some of them dismayed, openly dismayed. Um, and I, I saw that as I was walking down the street. So th- there were very different reactions. Um, the taxi drivers you spoke about, uh, some of them uh, told me that they weren't satisfied that uh, the Likud was uh, far enough right. Some of them told me that they wanted to go further right. Um, and, and some of them said they wanted to go more centered because they were concerned with kitchen table issues, um, which, which typically are the domain of the ultra-Orthodox parties. Okay, so let's talk for a second about what, uh, you know, what as an American Israeli, uh, and I'm not going to ask you who you voted for, but uh, what, was the, what was the sense of the... The, is it, did anybody ask you about the president? Did anybody ask you about Obama? Did anybody ask you how much does Obama really hate Bibi? Was that, did that conversation come it up? It did in, not factor in once. Did not factor in once. No, I was surprised. It didn't come up until after the polls closed. An American was the first person to note, um, you know, the disappointment that the Americans would feel. Um, I, I passed by the American embassy several times. Um, no one there looked. Uh, they didn't they have any Herzog signs. Or aware of it. They didn't have any vote for Herzog signs, vote for outside <laughs> no. the American embassy. Interesting. No. Um, but it was business as usual at the embassy with long lines. Um, but, but uh, you know, there, there were a lot of interesting things I thought um, I, I noticed that day. I, the, the night after, actually, um, you know, I, I counted the number of uh, the, the turnover, which from my, my standpoint I thought was huge. What, what would you imagine the turnover was in the Knesset? How many brand-new members in the Knesset were there in the, in the 20th Knesset? Oh, I, I couldn't answer that this second. I so have, a third I, of the Knesset turned over, four, or more than 40, 41 new members, brand new members, never been in the Knesset before. 
That's incredible. It is a huge number, I thought. So yeah. that speaks to the to the you know the sea change. And so the question is, is how that because that hold, hold on, hold on a second? Was that because that is that turnover because people were replaced during the primaries or because? The parties themselves, you know, they were, obviously, Yeshatid lost seats and Bayoudi lost, and very, you know, some parties gained seats and lost seats. But to have that big a number, you would have had to have a, a huge change during the primaries. Right. So a, a lot of the new members um, were were clearly people that were bumped up in the primaries, because and you know that because you see all the new members at the bottom of the list. Um, you know, there, there's uh, there's there, you know, for example, at the, the, the two largest parties, um, you know, have have all the let's say members from. Uh, 16 all the way through 28 in the case of Likud, or 29, uh, and and uh, uh, Bougie's party, Herzog's party, has has all the numbers, the, the members from 14 probably through uh, 27 or 26, or what the, the final number. 24, uh, 24, 24, 30, 30, 30 and 24, 24 are all new. Right. Um, the, the original polls came out um, and said 20, 26, 27. That's what Channel 2, Channel 10, everybody was calling 26, 27 dead heat. Right. Interestingly, another, another um, interesting indicator that we didn't take seriously enough, um, uh, there's another channel that I own uh, in, in Israel uh, that's a, uh, a TV channel that's broadcast outside of Israel. Um, and they did a poll of Americans, an online poll. So I'm, I'm, st- I'm stressing it was not a statistically sanctioned poll not a scientific, correctly done poll. It's just a, an interesting poll. But it was a pretty large sample size, over, well over 500 respondents. So now I think, for, you know, on a couple of levels, you, you have to take out some, some factors. I don't know how many American Arab voters would watch the Israeli network and, and feel compelled to vote for the Arab party. So I, I think you'd have to cross that off and the ultra-Orthodox as well. Right. So what was that number? The numbers showed up are the numbers that we had. In fact, we ha- I had one of the reasons I have the voice is because I wanted to put that poll on TV, um, the results. But there's a media blackout. Um, but I said it's going to be in America the results, so it doesn't affect the Israeli election. Right. And they can't come here anymore. So we argued and we finally compromised, and the Israeli election authority actually allowed us to broadcast the results. And they mentioned it in Channel Two in the election results. They mentioned the channel. And they mentioned the, the results. And the results showed a bl- not a blowout. They showed a large turnout, uh, a disproportionately large turnout for Likud. Right. So we we were ready to discount that early on, but uh, you know a couple of days after it's it's looking pretty uh, pretty close to what happened. Right. I want to welcome to the conversation our own Mayor Weingarten of the Israel Show here on the Nachum Siegel Network. Uh, Mayor uh, follows Israel, all aspects of Israel, very very closely. And Mayor, our our listening audience uh, tends to skew a little bit to the right, I would say. So when you when people initially thought that it was tied or thought that Netanyahu was going to be down. Uh, what what was the feeling amongst uh, amongst people that you speak to as far as you know the Israeli election results and then after that when Likud ended up being uh, significantly uh, stronger uh, give us give us that give us the sense or your takeaway from that well I think the Isra- I'm talking about Israelis who voted they were very uh, scared I, I missed the beginning of your conversation but they were scared and and that was part of what. Netanyahu did over the last week, and and I think created a lot of the changeover. They called it the the, the Gavalt campaign. You know, he's trying Gavalt. He's yelling, "Oh my God, we're going to lose. We're going to lose control. You better, you better." And so what happened is, ultimately, a lot of the Bayit Yehudi votes uh, went to Likud, and they gained uh, like eight votes. They gained um, eight seats for easily can be from the Bayit HaYehudi, even though some of them might have gone to Yeshatir, Yeshatir, whatever. But at the end of the day, four went from there, possibly a decent number from Yisrael Beitenu went to there. So I don't see that there's such a huge tectonic shift of right and left. There is the same pie of the right and the left, and the slices are being sliced up a little differently. Right, right. Michael, Michael I wanted to circle back to one other, one other point it's a it's a fine point, but I figured I'd make it. Um, to be fair, of the the third of the Knesset that turned over, and then the, the 41 new members, um, almost a quarter of those nine um, nine of those members are brand new because of Kulanu. Kachlan was in Likud right. before, obviously, but nine of his members were were never in there before. So that's already nine. So that gets us to nine. Right. Right. And so actually, so, showing, but... so let, Ellie, let me ask you a question for both of you. Uh, and, and as always in the show, I apologize. We're always running out of time. Uh, because there's just so much to talk about. Uh, we've substituted as our American representative, uh, Dove Lippmann of Yeshatid for, uh, Michael Oren of, 
of uh, of, of Moshe party, uh, uh, Kulanu. So, uh, man, tell us about the significance of that. Obviously, very different personalities, very different, uh, uh, very different approaches coming in, uh, and very different levels of seniority. I think for an American-born Knesset member. Yeah, I mean, Michael Oren is is a seasoned seasoned diplomat. And before that, an intellectual, a, a, a historian, written many books. Uh, I think he's widely respected in the United States. When he was ambassador here, I think he was considered well in the halls of, uh, of, of Washington. And so, look, there are people who think he could be a great foreign minister, especially if you want to try and work on the U.S.-Israel relationship. I don't know. Interesting. I, I don't think that's who they're floating. Um, you know, but but uh, in Israel, they're, they're, the the likely choices. He's not among the likely choices, but it's definitely a good a good suggestion, especially considering uh, considering what's been going on in Washington. The last no, I couple agree of days. with you that it's not it's not going to work. Probably also because Kaplan wants the Kaplan wants the finance ministry. Yeah, so Kaplan, Kaplan can't, wants, can't yeah, he both. wants finance. There's no question. Right, and he's so I get can't it. imagine that he's going to get the top. I mean, these are t- the two. Well, he top, wants finance. Uh, that's his issue when he's getting it. What's that? He, he, Kahlon wants finance. He campaigned on that, and he's going to get it. And he can't it. give that up. So if he gets that, I can't imagine that Likud is going to give the two top four folks correct, correct. of Chutz and Otsar to the same party. So that's not an issue. But I'm just saying, as far as the level of the person and what he could accomplish, he could be the, the guy that helps Netanyahu in the United States. And Netanyahu was always looking for the front guy, the guy who he could you know, help kosher all the problems that he's having uh, in Washington. Well, well he, can't, uh, he can't go ahead and uh, make him ambassador uh, at, again. So that's no, probably no, not going to happen. No, no, <laughs> no. Although I will tell you that that's something that the administration is floating. They're, they're getting out there. Yeah, the, the administration... The way to mollify the administration is to get rid of Dermer. Well, the the administration has uh, the administration has floated it uh, extensively, so there's no question that that's a big uh, that's a big ass on their part. But I, I I can't imagine the loyalty issue would be very significant, wouldn't you agree, Mayor? I'm I'm not understanding what you're saying. To, if, to get rid of Ron Dermer as the ambassador to the U.S. Look, Netanyahu and Ron Dermer are very close. Right. But at the same time, you know Netanyahu's history. You, it doesn't matter how close you are if he needs. You, if he needs to get rid of you, right? I guess I guess the Knesset right now is littered with some of those people. It's politics, you know. Uh, no, he can't get rid of Knesset members. No, but. no, I'm saying is uh, people, uh, people like Naftali Bennett, for example, who had been former BB, uh, have been former BB uh, staffers who are out there. Uh, right. In the, that. Tru- the truth is, with Bennett, we'll see what happens. Netanyahu owes this to Bennett. There's no question. He, the, 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 the Bennett, the Bennett's party, that, that part of the population, that segment, sort of, you know, laid on the floor and let Likud walk over them. They gave up four seats for Likud. There's no question about that. They talk about families in Yehudan Shomron who, who split the vote even though they were all going to vote for Bennett. And they said, okay, we'll have the husband vote for one, the wife vote for the other or something because of the Gavalt campaign, because Netanyahu said, hey, we are going to lose everything if you don't vote for me, which I don't know if that was true, but okay, it, they, it worked. Right, right. So well, he owes it, and yet, knowing Netanyahu, I hate to say the way he's behaved in the past, he could throw Bennett under the bus in a second also if he needs Not to. just Bennett. Yeah, well, you know, we're talking about that, but yes, correct. Right, gentlemen, I want to thank both of you for being on the show. Uh, Mayor Weingarten of the Israel Show, and Mayor, we never seem to have enough time, so we're going to have to devote a lot more to okay. uh, to our Michael, discussion. you have to come on the Israel Show one week. I'm looking forward to it. Ellie Singer okay. from the Jewish Channel, I really appreciate both of you coming on and giving us all, uh, this, this first-hand insight into the Israeli elections. Thank you, Michael. Okay, gentlemen, this is, uh, as we wrap best. up spin class for this year, I think that the one takeaway that I have here is that the success of Netanyahu and his consultant, Edmund Lee, could into making this a binary choice either it's me or the other side and that was really what got him there that's usually not the case in israel that you have that binary choice there's so many parties people want to you know spread out their vote for their own personal interest netanyahu made it about the national interest which uh and he put himself out there as the representative of that national interest very important point uh whoever told him to do that really hit the nail on the head because clearly that appealed to a lot of voters on the right to go ahead and support Likud over some of the other parties. And that's essentially what we saw 
in the difference in the polling from Likud going from an estimated 20 seats to 30 seats. And that's it for this week and getting the evil eye. And we will be back with you, not next week, not the week after, but after Pesach. Next week, I am in Cleveland for my nephew, Aryeh Pollock's Bar Mitzvah. Thank you, Executive Assistant of Rami. So a big shout-out to Aryeh Naftali Pollock, as well as his parents, David and Alana Pollock. Uh, my pilgrimage to Cleveland coming up next week. Next, the week after is Pesach, and we'll have to take it, take it up after that. Thanks for joining us here on another Thursday. Appreciate it, and stay tuned for another hour of Jewish Soul with... Charlie Burnout.